Would you turn in your Bibles with me? Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I've entitled the message Gospel-Driven Christianity. Gospel-Driven Christianity. It says here, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I that have no rights to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants in a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things in a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen? that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for your sake and our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope, sharing of the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I shall present the gospel free of charge so as not to make any fuel use of the right of the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, this morning, it's a long passage, but there are some 
very useful and helpful points that are here. One, over and over again, we heard the word gospel. It's the foundation of our lives. We celebrate in the Lord's table this morning. The gospel reminds us of the cross, reminds us of what Christ did for us. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the gospel. Second, this passage talks a lot, Lord, about giving up rights and surrendering rights out of love for others. Father, help us to do that. And then finally, Father, it talks about authority and listening to the authority that you've given us. Paul's authority that you've placed upon him and therefore the authority that we should be listening to this morning. Ultimately, Lord, take us to the cross. Ultimately, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Ultimately, Lord, help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. So it's interesting today... um, There is such a fight for rights today, isn't there? I mean, you can't turn on the TV without somebody fighting for their rights here or there. And, you know, our nation was built on rights. You know, the Constitution was written and the first ten amendments to the Constitution is called our Bill of Rights. And you may be familiar with those. I won't quiz you on those first ten, but it'd be interesting to see how many of them you could remember today. Um, Our first one talked about speech and the ability to worship freely. Um, There's a big fight today over the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. There's a right for taking care in court that you are taken care of in an appropriate way. There's a seeming right of privacy as well, and I guess we could debate that in some of the things that are happening today in our society. But to be honest, most of the fights today happen over people's perceived rights, over and over again. Their interpretation of the Constitution, their interpretation of the Bill of Rights, even their interpretation of the Word of God has led to many fights today. Rights are are basic freedoms, they're liberties, they're the things that you have, legal entitlements. In the past, I've given you an illustration of absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And if you remember this, I had talked to you about the fact that the vast majority of arguments that happen in relationships happen because somebody has elevated personal rights over and above their things that are written in scripture absolutes are biblical preferences or things that are laid down in scripture that are black and white in scripture that god says you must do this you must follow through on this over and over again those are laws that do not bend they are moral laws that will not bend those are absolutes convictions are are personal beliefs that you have personal convictions that you have and you hold firmly you go to god's word and you say i have a personal conviction that i choose not to drink wine and it's my personal conviction that i choose not to do that it would be wrong to make that a biblical absolute but it is a personal conviction that you may hold personally in your life preferences are even lower than that those are the things that i just prefer the things that i like in life And what I would ask you to do is to consider this, that are the vast majority of the arguments and the vast majority of the difficulties that you have in life based on biblical absolutes or are they based on convictions and preferences? And what Paul is saying is this, that his concern is this, that the Corinthians have taken something that is a preference or a conviction and made it sound like an absolute. And it creates so many difficulties in life. So as you think about those our freedoms, our rights, our liberties, we fight for those. 
It's part of the wars that we have today, part of the struggles that we have today, that people want to fight for their rights. It's just natural. It is unnatural. It, in fact, it is supernatural. It is spiritual to lay down your rights for the benefit of others. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in this chapter. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I had an opportunity to talk to you about chapter 8. And in chapter 8, if you remember what was happening, that there were some strong Christians and weak Christians, and there was a question about whether we could eat meat sacrificed to idols, that there were temples all around Corinth, and in those temples, the temple of Zeus or whatever it may be, what they would do in those meals is that they would sacrifice an animal. A third of that would go to the sacrifice. A third would go to the priest. A third would go out to those that were there. But under the priest um, portion, he may sell that in a butcher outside the temple. So it was least expensive meat. You could go there and purchase this meat at a cheaper expense. And the question would be, could I as a believer go and purchase meat from that least expensive butcher, but that meat has come from an idol? Well, the stronger people, if you remember, said, you can do it because there's no idol. There is only one God. Go and eat. Eat your T-bone steak all you want. Medium rare, sweet potato and butter, little asparagus on the side. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I diverted. (laughs) But there were some who were weak. And because of their past history with the pagan temples, they struggled with this. And every time they saw the meat, they reminded themselves of this idol and the pagan worship. And it was a strong conviction and it was a struggle for them. And they they questioned deep in their minds if they were even sinning in doing this. And the strong person who had the right to eat it was willing to trample on the convictions of the weaker brother. And so you remember in chapter uh, 8, Paul laid down a challenge and he says that the fundamental principle is love, regardless of what happens. He, He agreed with them that the idol is nothing. He agreed with them that there was nothing to this idolatry. But what he said was this, what troubled him was that you were troubling the conscience of the weak brother. And if you remember, we talked about conscience. Conscience is that internal warning system. I gave you an illustration of the fire alarm going off outside. If the fire alarm was going off in this building, there would be something within us that would want to look to make sure that there wasn't a danger. If we ignore that internal warning system, we could open ourselves up to greater problems in the future. So Paul is saying, don't cause them to go against their conscience. Help them along. Be willing to sacrifice that T-bone steak. Be willing to sacrifice it because of love. See, love should triumph over your liberty. Well, Paul has laid down this principle for them, and now he is giving them an illustration from his own life. And that's what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's interesting that Paul has been, uh, there is a doubt with Paul Paul is over and over again having to defend his apostleship, having to defend his authority. And that there must have been people in this church that were questioning Paul. Paul had a habit 
when he was with Gentiles to eat Gentile food and to spend time with Gentiles. And when he was with Jews, he ate Jewish food and he acted in Jewish ways. And some people thought that he was vacillating, that Paul was a people pleaser, that Paul was just doing this to get on people's good side. And so some of them were accusing him and they were attacking his authority as the messenger and therefore they could attack his message. And Paul needed to over and over again remind people that he was an apostle and therefore he had God-given authority in life. Paul says he wasn't playing both sides. He's, he's not, he's not double-minded. He's not a hypocrite. It w- if you remember in Galatians chapter 2, you remember where Peter had been meeting with the Gentiles and he had eaten in a certain way with the Gentiles, but then when his Jewish friends had come in, he all of a sudden changed and he started to act more like Jewish people? And, and Paul called Peter out on this. And some of them may have said, wait a minute, you just called Peter out on this, but you're doing the very same thing. And Paul says, no, I'm not. Paul is going to defend his behavior And in doing so, he's going to model for them that love has triumphed over liberty. Paul says, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not inconsistent. I have not failed. So basically, there are going to be two lines of argument in this chapter. The first line of argument is he confirms his apostolic authority. And therefore, he has all the rights that any apostle has. That's the first argument. The second argument he's going to give us is this, that he has willingly... uh, given up his rights he has willingly surrendered his rights out of love for those that are weak so i have the authority to expect this from you but i'm giving it up for those that are weak why can't you give up your t-bone steak so paul starts in verses one and two and i see him saying here he is declaring his role as an apostle look verses one and two he says this am i not free Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verses 1 and 2. Paul declares his role as an apostle. See, this chapter, if if you heard me as I was reading through the chapter, he has a series of 19 rhetorical questions. He's just hitting them with question after question after question. And a rhetorical question, in essence, is a figure of speech where you're forming a question, but you're not looking really for an answer. You're trying to make a point. And that's what Paul is doing. He's not looking to elicit an answer. He already knows the answer. And he starts with four rhetorical questions right in the beginning. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? And are you not my workmanship? And what Paul is doing is he begins this chapter by defending his role as an apostle. He says, first, I'm free. I'm under no authority outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of his word and outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have been placed here as the ultimate shepherd to shepherd you. I'm free. Paul also was probably thinking about, I'm, I'm free from having to follow this Mosaic law any longer. Not the moral law, but the Mosaic law any longer. I'm, I'm free to be, to eat that T-bone steak. I'm free not to eat the T-bone steak. I am free, Paul says. And he's saying, in essence, in some ways, all of us are free. In Galatians 5, he says, why do you keep going back to the thing that enslaves you? You are set free in Christ. So he begins with the freedom. But then he goes to the fact, am I not an apostle? 
There are many people today that would call themselves apostle, but, but one of the criteria for being apostle, an apostle is that you had to have seen the risen Lord. And so the apostles of the New Testament are the only apostles that we have because they saw the risen Lord. And a number of people debated Paul's apostolic authority because he came to Christ after Christ died. But he saw the risen Lord in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, that that Christ came out of heaven and showed himself to Paul. And not only did he see Christ, but he was commissioned by Christ. So Paul is free. Paul is an apostle. And Paul says, I have seen the Lord. That is the proof of my apostleship. I have seen the risen Christ. And then even greater proof of my apostleship is you're my workmanship. That if you are saved and if you have grown in faith and it has happened because of my ministry, it is a proof that I've been called by the Lord into this role. So there were some Corinthians that were doubting Paul standing as an apostle. The honest opinion is they should not have. But there were some that were trusting in him. And now there was a debate over who do we trust in. So Paul declares his role as an apostle. Next he goes, he declares his rights, verses 3 through 6. He declares his rights as an apostle. He says this, this is my defense. Uh, This interesting word, this word defense is apologia. It is, he is making an argument. Um, And then he says, and then those who are examining me, those who would examine me, that's both of these are legal terms. And these legal terms, it's like Paul, Paul is in court and he is having to defend himself. And everything that's going to happen after this, he's going to try to defend his role as an apostle. And here's his, his defense. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no rights to refrain from working for a living? So Paul has begun by talking about his role as a believe, as an apostle, and now he goes to these rights, a right to substance, food and drink, a right to a spouse that he could take a spouse along, and a right to support financially. That, that Paul, as called by God, has these rights to be taken care of as he is a right to be taken care of as a leader of that church, the father of that church, that he has a right to food and drink. The other apostles get it. Why don't I? He has a right to take a spouse. And if you know, Paul, in all likelihood, it was either widowed or he was single, and he had no spouse. But Peter and all the other apostles had spouses. And in fact, their spouses got a chance to go with them on these missionary journeys. And the church paid for them. And Paul says, don't I have a right to substance? Don't I have a right to a spouse and a wife that will travel with me when I go on these missionary journeys? And then don't I have a right to your financial support? And what he says is this, Barnabas and I have chosen not to take it. We've chosen not to. Why? He'll talk about that. Because as Paul moves into the next section, he talks about the rationale for giving up his rights. His rationale. In verses 7 through 14, he says, here's why I have the right to be supported. I'm going to give you six reasons why I have the right to be supported, and then I'm going to tell you why I don't take it. His first rationale is this, in verse 7, I have, if you look at the workers in this world, 
The workers in this world work and they get paid. Watch here in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? What Paul does is he uses a rationale, number one, from the world, and he says, the life of a worker, you choose to go to work tomorrow and you expect a paycheck at the end of the week. This is just the way life goes. So if Paul is serving as your leader in the church, he is expecting that you will support him. And Paul says, a soldier, a military person, they go to war and what do they do? They go and serve in the army, they go and serve in the military, and they expect that they are going to be supported by their people. The farmer tends the field and they expect to get something from their prop. Or the the person who tends a flock of sheep expects to get milk or something from those sheep. They expect to receive from the work that they're giving. So Paul says rationale number one is this. I am an apostle and I deserve the rights of an apostle. And it's just out in the world. His second rationale is from the word. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Okay, so now what Paul does is go back to the Mosaic Law. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, and in there it talks about the ox. And what the ox would do is they would have the ox walk over this grain, and what it would do is crush the grain as it walked over it, and then what was left over would be beneficial. Now, it would be wrong to put a muzzle on that ox as he's doing all of this work and the ox wants to bend down and eat the food. That would be inhu- that would be wrong. It would be cruel. And if it was cruel to do that to an ox, how much more so would it be cruel to do it to your apostle who is the spiritual father of your church? That he has been working and you're not supporting him. So Paul's argument number one is that the workers in the world get their pay. Paul's argument number two is from the word. He says, in the word, we see that other, even the animals get paid for the work that they do. Paul's argument number three is, look within, verse 11 and 12. He says this, if we had sown spiritual things among you, is it too little if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we even more? So Paul is arguing here that there are just, if you look in life, I have been sowing these things in your life. Don't I benefit materially from you? And Paul is asking them to look within. What is it that you value? What is most important to you? Is it the material things of this world or is it the spiritual things? The the dilemma with our world today and part of the reason why there's so many people fighting for their rights is they're fighting for material things that are not lasting, they're temporal, they're personal, they're earthly. They're not fighting for things that are eternal, heavenly, beneficial to all. So what is it that you're fighting for, Paul is in essence saying? I want you to look within in your own heart. If I've given you the ultimate thing spiritually, will you not benefit me materially so Paul's argument 
he starts with the world. He looks at the workers that are there. He then goes to the word. He asks them to look within. And then he asks them to think about just the worship that happened around. Look with me in verse 13. It says this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple get their service from the food in the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Paul's argument next is this, that I want you to know this, that if you go back to the way worship happened in the Old Testament, the priest would serve in the temple, you would bring a sacrifice, the priest would get a chance to get a benefit of that sacrifice. You would bring your grain, the priest would eat off of that. So if that was true in the Old Testament worship in the tabernacle and temple, isn't it true in the church today? That as the leader, the leader should benefit from their congregation. That's Paul's argument. Paul then finalizes his rationale, and he says, then it's the Lord's will, Christ's command. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's probably thinking of Matthew 10, verse 10, where the Lord Jesus said, for a worker is worthy of their food. Or in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, it says, Whatever city you enter, when, you re- when they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. So, so what Paul is trying to argue is this, that my role as an apostle is confirmed because I've seen the risen Christ. You're the appeal of my workmanship. I have these rights, a right to substance, a right to espouse, a right to your support. I'm going to give you the rationale of why I have those rights. I'll give you the rationale just from the world. I'll give you the rationale from the word. I'm going to give you the rationale from looking from within what it is that you value. I'm going to give you the rationale from what the will of the Lord is that he has proclaimed. That, that he is arguing that I have these rights. Now, Paul, why are you belaboring this point? Maybe even as you're sitting here this morning, it's like, okay, James, I got it. All right, he has the right to support. Paul is belaboring these rights because he wants them to know that in the role as, his, as the apostolic authority, he has the right to expect this from them, and he does something that is extraordinary. What Paul says is this, even though I have this right, I'm surrendering it. Verse 15, Paul declares his restrictions of these rights. He says this, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to you to secure such a provision. What Paul is saying is this, I've not taken your money in the past, and I'm not writing this as a support letter for you to give me money in the future. I'm not doing that. There's no underhanded motive. There's no ulterior motive here. I'm not trying to get money from you. I'm telling you I had the right to demand this from you, and I've chosen to give it up for you. Why? Why? We'll find out. Paul says, I would prefer to die, verse 15, than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What's the boast? For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. See, Paul says, I have declared my restrictions of these rights. His basic practice was this. I'm going to surrender my rights, and I am going to sacrifice taking a payment from you. I will say this, that Paul did get supported by other churches. 
And Paul also was kind of like our pastors here, bivocational. Paul would receive support from the church, but his primary means of support was his tent making. And what Paul did, and what it seems to be, is this, that Paul would come to the chapel at Warren Valley, and he'd say, I'm not going to take a paycheck from you. I have the right to, but I'm not going to. I'm going to have the church that I went to a week ago support me. I'm not going to take the money of the people that I'm here with today because the last thing he wants people to think is that I'm doing this and I'm giving you the gospel for a charge. So Paul says, I'm going to restrict my rights and my practice is this, I'm going to surrender and I'm going to sacrifice. Now the other apostles, they may have gotten their money from the church. That's okay. But Paul chose to give up this liberty out of love. Paul chose to give up a living out of love. Paul chose to work hard outside his ministry out of love. So Paul says, he describes his practice. I've I've surrendered and I've sacrificed. And then Paul describes and declares his passion. He said this, for if I preach the gospel, verse 16, this gives me no ground for boasting, for the necessity is laid upon me. I think that's his calling. I think that it was when God called him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, I talked about Acts chapter 9. And that, that Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And as he's walking on this road to Damascus to get Christians to imprison them, Christ apprehends him and transforms him and draws him to faith in him. And what Paul is saying is this, I have been called by the second person of the Trinity to this ministry. He says, not only have I been called, he says, verse, verse um, 16, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, I've been called, and there's this divine compulsion that's happening within me. I am being driven to preach the gospel. You know, Tim, Doug, and I get an opportunity to preach, and I'm telling you, um, we would do it for nothing. Yes, we do get support on some levels from you all in this congregation, but we just love doing it. We love being able to preach and teach. There's a compulsion that happens within, but even greater for Paul. The Apostle Paul saw the risen Christ, and he has this compulsion, this divine compulsion. So he's been called to faith. He has a compulsion to um, speak and share God's word. And then he said there's a consequence to him. Woe to me if I do not do this. That, that he knew that if God has called him and put this compulsion upon him, that if he chooses not to preach the gospel, that there would be a consequence. And the consequence would be God's discipline in his life. And Paul says, in essence, I want you to hear, here's my compensation. Listen to his compensation. For if I preach the gospel, verse 16, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For the necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this of my own will. I have a reward. So meaning, if I do this just in my own ability, I should get paid. But if not by my own will, then I am entrusted with a stewardship. God has given a stewardship to Paul. He has given him the gospel. And he says, I want you to take that gospel and multiply it. You remember the parable where Jesus um, had talked about talents and you've been given a talent? Some actually multiplied that talent. Others stopped the talent. What Jesus is saying is that I've given all of you this stewardship. 
And I've opened your eyes and drawn you to faith, so now I want you to take that gospel message out to the world. So Paul says, here's my compensation. Verse 17, for if I do this by my own will, I will have a reward. But if not by my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? Verse 18, that in my preaching, I might present the gospel, what? Free of charge. So as to make, not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. See, Paul was willing to surrender his apostolic rights and his apostolic authority to receive these compensations from from the Corinthian people because he did not want to create a stumbling block in any way. So Paul begins by talking about his role. He talks about his rights. He talks about his rationale for giving up those rights. He talks about the restrictions that he has placed upon himself. And now Paul reviews his ministry philosophy. I want you to hear Paul's ministry philosophy because this ministry philosophy, I've got one finger out, three fingers point back. I need to hear this in my life. And we need to passionately do this in our lives. And, I, and some of you are not preachers of the gospel, but all of us who are in faith should be having this same philosophy of ministry. He starts with this verse 19 for though I am free from all I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them do you hear it Paul says I'm free I'm not a bound to anybody I'm not slave to anybody I am absolutely and totally free in Christ You cannot mandate me. You are not my master. I only have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says, even though I am free in Christ, then Paul says this, I've made myself your slave. I've made myself your servant. Why, Paul? That just seems so crazy. You know, our world is fighting for rights and their perceived freedom. And Paul is saying, I'm going to make myself your servant. Why? Paul says to the Jew... I I became a Jew to win the Jews. Paul says, I am not duplicitous. I am not hypocritical. When he is in a Jewish area with people in a Jewish environment, he is going to do their cleansings because he knows, even though he knows the cleansings mean nothing for his salvation. He is going to practice in the way that they do, even though he knows that it has nothing to do with their salvation. Why? He is not willing to be offensive. He wants the cross to be offensive, not his actions. That's huge. See, too many of us make our actions, our words and our actions, an offense, and people can't hear the gospel. Paul says, I am going to lay aside those so that people can hear the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give respect to them. He's not going to bend on moral laws. Paul never is going to do that. But on these other things, you know, not the absolutes. He's not going to bend on the absolutes. But those convictions and those preferences, I'm going to bend on. Because I want them to hear the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. For the the Jew, I'm going to do that. We saw that in, in the book of Acts. Paul would participate in the purification ceremonies, the washings. Paul even had Timothy circumcised. Why? Because, Timothy, you're going to try to have a ministry among the Jews and you're not circumcised. You must be circumcised, not because it's going to provide your salvation, but it's going to provide an opportunity for the gospel to go out in your lives. 
So Paul would say, I'm going to remove every barrier that I can. To the Jew, I can become a Jew. To those under the law, another uh, form of Jew, I became as one under the law to win them. So he starts by the Jews, and then he goes to the Gentiles, and he says, to those outside the law, most of us here who are not Jewish in our heritage, I become as one outside the law. So when Paul would sit down with a Gentile person, what he would do? He would eat their food. He would do their customs. He would not do the washings. He wouldn't be worried about whether they're circumcised or not because Paul wanted to become all things to all people so that he can give them the main issue, the gospel. So Paul sought to win people to Christ by being sensitive to their needs, as one author said, and identifying with them. We should try to reach people where they are today and expect to see things change in their lives. So Paul says, here's my passion. Here's my ministry. He says, I have done this, in essence, to provide the opportunity for that gospel mission to go out. Did you hear the repeated word in this section, win? See, if Paul is becoming a Jew just to become a Jew, it would be foolish unless there is an end point, win. To be under the law when he's not under the law, unless you have the end point, win, it means nothing. It's craziness. To become like somebody outside the law, you're, you're almost schizophrenic, Paul. No, I've got one goal in mind, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ going out to as many people as God gives me in life. And that was Paul's desire. So I ask you this morning, is that, is that your desire? Is that mine? He says, I want to win them. I want to win them in conversion I want to win them in discipleship. I want them to be evangelized and I want them to be discipled. I want to see converts and I want to see the character of Christ come out of this community and I will do whatever I can do to make that happen. And Paul says, if money is going to be a stumbling block, I give it up. I give it up so that the good news of the gospel goes out. Paul ends this section. I'll just do this briefly. By talking about two illustrations. He uses the illustration of athletics and he uses the, uh, the illustration of a servant. He started by saying that he's a servant of all and now he moves to this athletic theme. theme. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run but only one receives the prize? So run in a way that you may attain it. You know, I don't know about you. I played college basketball and baseball, and um, I'm a pretty competitive person. Um, my daughter can probably tell you I even compete at Monopoly. I mean, it's just, it's just there is something within me that I just want to win. And maybe sometimes it's sinful, and I have to confess that. But, but Paul says this, a runner doesn't go into a race. What kind of athlete spends all the hours and all the time to run to come in second place. They run to win. The boxer doesn't go in there and get pummeled so that he comes in second. He gets pummeled so that he can win. And that's Paul's point here at the end. He says, every athlete exercises self-control. He disciplines himself. 
you know, in athletes, they compete, they're seeking to seize a prize, they go through some diligent training, they remain focused, no distractions. That's what an athlete does. And as Christians, we're supposed to do the same. We're supposed to compete, not for material things, but for eternal things. We're not supposed to compete to get an earthly prize, but to see many sons in glory. See, we want to bring a train load of people to heaven. See, that's what we should be competing for. And in doing so, to compete and to win that prize, we need to be diligent in our training. And diligent in our training is getting into God's word and knowing this gospel message and letting it impact our attitudes and our actions. And it transforms us. And Paul says this, that every athlete exercises these things, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So we do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be found to be disqualified. Not loss of salvation, but maybe loss of a reward. And then Paul ends this section by saying this. He talks about the fact that he wants to be one that is going to run with a purpose and to fight with a purpose. So I ask you in closing, what is it that you've been fighting over? It's probably your rights. Are the rights absolutes? Are they biblical standards of right and wrong? Or are they just basic convictions and preferences? And in your fight for those rights, those preferences and convictions, are you hindering the gospel message coming out of your life? And if you're doing that, The only reason we are here, our singing is going to be better in heaven, the preaching is going to be better in heaven, our relationships are going to be better in heaven, the only reason we are here is because there are a bunch of lost people and you've been given the gospel of God's amazing grace, so remove every hindrance that you can. Let love triumph over your liberty. Let you be a gospel-driven Christian. And as you do that, God wants to transform your life. So Paul's message was pretty clear. His message was the gospel. Paul's mission was pretty clear. His mission was to win as many as he could. Paul's method, bridge building. I'm going to remove every hindrance. I will become like you to influence you. I'm willing to give up my habits. I'm willing to give up my preferences. I'm even willing to give up my lifestyle if I can build a bridge to you. But Paul's ultimate motivation was this, love. It wasn't a T-bone steak. It was love. I think Paul's motivation was also one other thing, maybe two. Hell. Paul literally believed in a hell. Paul literally believed that when he saw a person, he didn't just see a physical person, any earthly person, he saw an eternal being. And he saw that that person, unless they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to spend all of eternity in hell. that transformed the way Paul preached, 
that transformed the way Paul lived. His motivation was love. His motivation was that there is a hell waiting for that person. The person that pumps your gas, the neighbor, your family member, your friend, that you live your life and never tell them the good news of the gospel of grace and they're plunging to hell, Paul says, God forbid. Paul's motivation was love. Paul's motivation was Christ. Paul's motivation was hell. But Paul's motivation was also that I might win as many as I possibly can. So this morning, my brothers and sisters, my friends, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're one of my friends here, I pray that today would be the day that uh, you would recognize that um, there's a very bad eternity that awaits you if you don't trust in him. And what Christ did for you is this, that God is the creator of this world and he set up a standard and he says, here's the law. And humanity has rebelled against that law. We've done what we want. And, And God says, you have the right, I have the right to punish all of you and his wrath is heavy upon you. And what God said is this, that I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is going to live a perfect and righteous life that you have never been able to live. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to die in your place 2,000 years ago so that when he died on a cross 2,000 years ago, all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been taken care of. And that when he gave up his life, because nobody took his life, he gave up his life willingly for those that were going to trust in him. Then what he did was this, that life that he lived, he says, you can have. And the forgiveness that he earned, he says, it is yours. And the only thing he requires is faith. And even the faith, he says, I give to you as a gift. Amazing. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of this power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of all of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, according to the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming age, in eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Lord, I pray today that you would remind us of the message, the gospel, I pray today that you would remind us of our mission to win as many as we possibly can. I pray that you would remind us of our method to build bridges, to remove any obstacle that would hinder 
that gospel message from going out, giving up our preferences, giving up our habits, giving up our lifestyles, giving up our convictions so that we can get the gospel out. Your son did that when he was talking to that woman at the well, that Samaritan woman. Your son did that with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, this tax collector, this cheat. Christ didn't become a cheat to earn this cheat. He went to the cheat in order to draw that cheat to you because of him. And Paul's motivation was love, love for others. Build our love for each other, Father. Paul's motivation was hell, Father. He knew that there was a reality of hell and there was only one way to avoid it, the Son the cross. Paul's motivation was Christ. Not I, but Christ. I pray that that be our motivation today in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen.